All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That is the issue in the gospel. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful that we have this time to come to your word and to be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened by your word, because we know that it's through your word, under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that we grow and mature as believers, that it is through the milk and the meat of your word that our spiritual lives are nourished, and that it is only when we devote ourselves seriously and in a concentrated way upon your word that we can grow and mature as believers, that growth is not automatic. Maturity is something that takes time, and it takes our own volition to engage the Word, to reflect upon it, and to let it transform us from the inside out. And, Father, today as we come to your Word, we pray that we might be strengthened from it. We pray that we might focus on and be able to focus on this time without being distracted by the cares or concerns of what may happen this afternoon or what's transpired in the previous week. And, Father, we pray that as we study, we may come to a greater understanding of your grace, your provision for each one of us, that our strength may be in you and not in ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verses, verse 26. Matthew chapter 10, verse, actually verse 24, beginning in 10, 24. Now, in the preceding verses, as we've gone through this chapter, Jesus has focused on commissioning the 12 disciples to a particular mission. Matthew chapter 10 contains the second of four major discourses by the Lord Jesus Christ that are recorded by Matthew. I think Matthew records uh, more discourses than any of the other Gospels, which means that when we move through the narrative material, that is the stories that are taking place in the life of Christ, they set up and frame these particular discourses. We've already looked at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and now in Matthew chapter 10 we're looking at his commissioning of the Twelve. Now, as I pointed out in the past, when he commissions the twelve, this is a specific mission. Not everything that he says here is applicable to any other group. He sends them to the house of Israel for the specific mission of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And there were certain specifics of that mission that are unique to this particular incident. But then there are other aspects of what he says here that are also applied to other groups. For example, in, in uh, Luke, in, in Luke chapter 14, we have a parallel passage that seems pretty similar 
but it's different in a number of respects, but there are a lot of places where the same kinds of instructions are given, but it's the commissioning of the 70, not the 12. So Jesus obviously repeated certain things over and over again to different groups in different contexts, and we'll see that some of the instructions that he gave to the uh, to the 12 here are repeated in different places in some of the other Gospels as he uh, gave instruction to different groups. So he gives the commission to these 12, and they're going to go out to the house of Israel. They are to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, and they will be accompanied by various miracles which validate their mess- message. They are seen as his emissaries. There's this tight connection that we must understand between the disciples as his representatives and Jesus as their teacher, as their leader, as the Messiah who sends them. So as we went through this, we saw that he gave the disciples various instructions regarding the message and how they would be received, that there would be varying responses to their particular message, and that's described in verses 9 through 15. And then he's going to warn them in verses 16 down to 39 of some of the opposition and rejection that they're going to encounter. And we're in the middle of that section right now. So as Jesus is teaching them, he first of all told them that they were going to go on this trip. They're going to be traveling throughout uh, the Galilee. They're not to go to any Gentiles. They're not to go in the way of the Gentiles. They're not to go to the Samaritans. And he gives them these specific instructions. And then he says something that would probably drive most of you crazy. Having traveled a good bit with many of you, I know that this would immediately uh, increase your fear factor and your anxiety factor to a high level. He tells them they weren't to take anything with them. They weren't going to take any money. They weren't to take any extra clothes. They couldn't take an extra bag and check it in on the airplane. They couldn't take an extra carry-on bag. They couldn't take anything with them at all. No extra money, no extra clothes, no uh, backup or safety system, no uh, security net. They had to uh, just take what was on their back. They had no nothing to fall back on in case anything went wrong. Now, for most of you, that alone would make this a, 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 an episode or an event of, of extreme anxiety because you like to take five or six changes of clothes, at least six or seven pairs of shoes. If you're a woman, just in case, you never know what the situation may be. You want to carry at least one or two extra credit cards in case there's identity theft or something goes wrong with one card. You have a couple of others to fall back on. And you want to make sure that you have enough clothes in case you go swimming in the pasta sauce or the waiter spills some wine on you or anything like that. And to not have any backups is just automatically a situation that's going to cause you to start to panic. So that's enough to start the fear factor going. But then Jesus tells them that they're going to have to make certain public statements about the response that they get to their message. They're going to come to some homes, and the people are going to welcome them and respond positively to the message, and they're going to stay there, and these people are going to provide for them. But then there's going to be a large segment that are going to reject them. They're going to be hostile to them, and they're going to have to make a public display of that rejection by leaving that person's house and making a physical, uh, a dramatic display of shaking off the dust 
uh, from that house uh, in front of the house as a sign of God's rejection and judgment upon that house for their rejection of the gospel message. And so they have to make this public show of condemnation, which never wins friends and influences people. That just doesn't endear us to folks when we are publicly condemning them. Then Jesus uh, t- tells them that they're going to that these people they go to are going to respond to them like ravenous, voracious wolves. They're going to be uh, uh, like sheep in the midst of wolves, and these wolves are going to seek to destroy them. They're going to be arrested. They're going to be forcibly dragged before various religious councils and even synagogue leaders who are going to beat them, scourge them, and torture them. Now, if you were to receive that kind of a commissioning, that you're going to go on this mission, I'm not going to tell you how long it's going to last. You're not going to take anything with you, and people are going to react very hostilely toward you. How would you start feeling? Well, at this point, Jesus makes it even more pleasant to anticipate. He says that they will even be dragged before kings and governors who will have them tortured and imprisoned. To make it worse, they're going to be rejected by some of their closest family members. Some of their parents, some of their children, some of their brothers and sisters are not only going to reject them, they're going to call the authorities to have them arrested and executed. Now, we all love rejection, don't we? So this is not a scenario that, that the disciples would look to with great anticipation. So not only does Jesus paint a pretty dreary picture about the mission, he then concludes it by saying that they will be hated by all and persecuted so that they have to flee from one city to the next. They're, in other words, you can't plan on anything for the future. You can't lay down any roots. You can't buy a home. You can't build a family. You're not going to be in a position to save for your retirement. Uh, You're going to have complete instability in terms of your life because you are emissaries of me. Now, that, of course, is going to create a situation where where it's going to raise the fear factor in the, the disciples, and that is exactly what Jesus is going to address starting in verse 24 which is where we are today. Three times in this next section, Jesus is going to say, fear not to these disciples. He's addressing the problem. Now, as I pointed out before, in the first 23 verses, a lot of what he says there is really tailored to this particular mission. In fact, when we look at the what he says in the first uh, 15 verses or so, that applied and was experienced, much of that was experienced by the disciples in that initial journey they were on in approximately A.D. 30. But some of the things that are mentioned in verses 16 to 23 are not fulfilled until just prior to the coming of the Son of Man. We talked about that last time, that that event known as the coming of the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 takes place at the end of the tribulation. Then, in fact, when Jesus also makes the statement in verse 22 that he who endures to the end shall be saved, that he makes that same statement in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse. And so that tells us that those particular events, the, the really intense opposition and rejection, 
was something that would be experienced immediately prior to the coming of the Son of Man. Now, at that particular time, the disciples were not told, there's no announcement yet that there's going to be a pause in God's plan for Israel and the introduction of this new dispensation of the church age. So if things had gone in the way that God had had revealed it in the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come, offer the kingdom, and that if the Jews, that's the condition, if the Jews had responded positively, then what would have happened after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ was that there would have come a period of seven years of intense suffering and persecution, which is when this would have taken place, and then it would have culminated in the second coming of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. So from their perspective, this could have taken place within their lifetime if Israel had responded positively to the gospel of the kingdom. Because they didn't, that part of it is postponed and will not be experienced until the tribulation period. So those first 23 verses really focus our attention on the specifics and the unique aspects of this particular mission. But then when Jesus deals with how to respond to the problem, how to respond to the opposition, the persecution, the hostility that they're going to face, he gives instructions that apply not only to their situation, but apply across the dispensations. When he addresses this command of fear not, this is a command that has its roots in much instruction in the Old Testament. It's tied to many different situations where Israel faced opposition and hostility in the uh, in the Old Testament. And in fact, it continues to be a major uh, command and, and encouragement in the New Testament because fear is such a fundamental problem that every one of us faces. And so after Christ instructs the disciples about the dangers that they will face in carrying out the, the mission, he then begins to teach them and us about the proper mental attitude we have to develop as we face the, the challenges of life. We have to recognize that just like the disciples are the emissaries of Christ, and they're going to face rejection, hostility, uh, because of that, we too are going to face the same thing. And so just like any good soldier prepare, prepares himself mentally before going into combat, we have to prepare ourselves mentally before we go into uh, into combat, before we engage the enemy in terms of our representation of Christ. So Jesus focuses on mindset training here, mental attitude dynamics, so that the uh, Twelve disciples can understand how they are to face the challenges ahead. Since we uh, encounter the same kind of opposition but to different degrees, then we also have to learn from these particular examples. So Jesus, first of all, warns them that they should expect the same kind of treatment as he, that because he is the the, the teacher they're not going to be any greater than him. They should not expect a different response. So in Matthew 10, 24 through Matthew 10, 25a, the first part of that second verse, Jesus warns the, the disciples that they should expect to have the same treatment that, uh, that he receives. He states this principle clearly in verse 24 where he says, A disciple is not above his teacher.'" 
nor a servant above his master. Now, apparently, this was a fairly well-known proverb at that particular time. And there seems to be some, some, uh, uh, some examples of that in ancient literature or parallels to it in any way. A disciple is someone who is simply a student, someone who is learning from a, a teacher, someone who has bound himself in many cases to a particular leader of a school or teacher, and they are committed to learn and develop on the basis of what that teacher has to give them. Now, Technically, in the New Testament, a disciple is usually viewed as someone who is, first of all, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and second, someone who is committed to grow and mature spiritually. Now, not all believers are disciples. There are many believers who simply are satisfied with the fact that their eternal destiny is secure by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. But when it comes to uh, becoming spiritually mature, going through the process of spiritual growth, learning the Word of God, becoming an effective student of the Word, they're just not interested in that. Uh, They would rather just get by, just make sure they're going to be in heaven than to fully understand the richness and the fullness of the new life that Christ has given us and, and all of the, all of the uh, assets that we now have in Christ as believers in, in the church age. And so they just are satisfied with being believers, but they're not really disciples. Now, occasionally the word disciple describes someone who's not a believer. For example, Judas Iscariot. But generally that's an exception when Jesus is instructing his disciples and he's teaching them about what a growing, mature believer should look like. So that's, that's his understanding here. He says a disciple is not going to be above his teacher nor a servant above his master. So in this second line, he compares the teacher-disciple relationship to a master-servant relationship. And he's implying that uh, as the Lord, because the word that's translated master there is the same word translated Lord elsewhere, kurios, that as Lord... They are his servants. They are his slaves. This foreshadows the uh, fact that many of the apostles, as they wrote the, their, their epistles, Paul and Peter, they referred to themselves as douloi or doulos, as servant or a slave of Christ. So what Jesus is emphasizing here is that a disciple should expect to have the same kind of treatment as his master. So as students of the word, we should expect to have the same kind of response to our lives and to our ministries as, uh, as the Lord Jesus Christ. So we should be, expect that just as he was reviled and ridiculed and misrepresented, falsely charged, physically tortured, and publicly executed, that we may experience much of the same kind of thing. And so in verse uh, 25, Jesus then goes on to say, it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, that we should follow in his footsteps and emulate him and a servant like his master. So again, he's just reiterating and reemphasizing the fact that what our Lord experienced is something that we too should expect. We should not expect that just because we're a Christian that everything should be rosy and everything should be fine and we're not going to experience rejection or hostility uh, because of that. 
In fact, this is paralleled in other passages of Scripture. The Apostle Paul gives us a promise in 2 Timothy 3.12. This has always been one of my favorite promises. You know, many of us think of great promises that God has given us in relationship to his provision for us in times of fear and anxiety, the way he will supply all of our needs, and we focus on these promises. But there are some promises in Scripture that are somewhat difficult for people to wrap their arms around, and this is one of them. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Doesn't that just warm you this morning? Makes you feel so good. The word translated persecution is the word dioko, which actually has a range of meaning. The English word persecution really is a much more narrower concept where we're focused on some sort of overt active uh, pursuit, opposition, punishment, torture, something of that nature, whereas the word in the Greek means someone who's just chafed, chased after, somebody who's rejected, somebody who's pursued or persecuted. So there's a range of opposition there. There are people who are going to reject us. That just because you're a Christian, they don't want to have anything to do with you. And there may be somebody that's even close to you, people uh, in your family, people who are uh, who you work with may not want to have anything to do with you because you are trying to live a consistent spiritual life. And they may be people whose respect or whose admiration you might like to have. They're nice people. There may be people that are important to you in your advancement in your particular career or in your job, and yet because you're a Christian, you're never going to gain their respect. This is a milder form of persecution. But then there are more extreme forms of persecution. And there's even rejection from people who are believers who just don't want to get with the plan. And because you are a believer who's focused on spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, that as you grow and mature, you present a source of conviction for them in their life. And so they may react against you, and they may be a source of hostility in your life and a source of rejection. So this doesn't come simply from other, other I mean, simply from non-believers. It also can come from believers. In John 15, 20, and 21, our Lord repeated the same thing. So here we have it in a context where he's sending out the 12, but in John 15, Jesus is addressing his disciples the night before he went to the cross, and this is within what is called the upper room discourse, when the Lord was giving his disciples instruction on what they would experience following the his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. He's giving them principles related to the church age and the spiritual life of the church age in John chapter 15. And there he says to them, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. So he's going right back. He's reminding them of this same thing that he had taught them back in Matthew chapter 10. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He didn't say they might persecute you. He doesn't say this is something that could happen. He says they will. This is another expression of a promise. They will also persecute you. If they 
if they kept my word, talking about those who are positive, those who are obedient, the other side of the, uh, of the equation, he says, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. So again, he emphasizes that this is done because of Jesus and who he is. When we see that phrase, my name's sake, or something that's done in my name, that concept of name in, uh, in, in a Semitic culture represented the character and the person of someone. It's not just a label. We think of names as simply labels or tags for something. But in the ancient world, they often thought of names as something that reflected the inner character of someone. In the Old Testament, we think of especially uh, someone like Jacob, Yaakov, and his name meant heel grabber or chiseler. And that represented the kind of character of, of Jacob that he was always trying to get what was his no matter uh, what it involved. He would uh, utilize the principle of the end justifies the means that if he thought he had the right to something, then he would come up with any way he could to manipulate the situation so he would get what, what he wanted. And then later, after God has dealt with him in many different ways, uh, God met him at a place that was called afterward Peniel, a place where uh, Jacob met God face to face, and there was a wrestling match between the angel of the Lord and, and Jacob, and Jacob was, was holding on to the Lord because he, in this wrestling match because he wanted the Lord to bless him, to give him that blessing that had been promised before his birth. And so it's at that point that God did bless him and gave him a new name, Israel, meaning a prince with God or someone who is blessed by God. And so the name represents character. And so when Jesus says that, that they will do these things for my namesake, he is basically saying they're going to persecute you because of who I am and what I've done at the cross. And if they've done that to me, they're going to do the same kind of thing to you as well. And so then he goes on to point out just one particular instance of how these disciples are going to experience this rejection from the religious leaders in Israel. In the second part of verse 25, Jesus says, if they called the master of the house. Now there he's using a term related to himself. He's just using this analogy of, 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 the, of, of the master's servant, relationship as the master of the house, if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? So we have to understand this just a little bit. First of all, the if there represents what's called a first-class condition in Greek grammar. There are different ways to express conditional clauses in Greek depending upon what the writer or what the speaker wants to convey. There are four different ways in which you can communicate an if clause in Greek. In English, we only have one way. We say if. But in Greek, there's these four different ways. In the first-class condition, the author or the speaker is assuming that what he is saying is true. Now, that doesn't mean it is true. Because there are times when, for example, uh, you're just assuming it to be true for the sake of argument. 
And other times you may think it's true and it may not be true. It's merely the way in which the speaker is, is thinking about this, the condition at the time that he is stating it. And sometimes it does have, in about 30% of its uses, it does have the sense of if and something is true. So, And it is true in reality. So that's what Jesus is saying here, if, and he's saying, and it's true. They have called the master of the house Beelzebub. Beelzebub. Now, there's a little bit of a significance to this that's important. This is truly a blasphemous concept because it's identifying Jesus with Satan. And we've already seen a hint of this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 34. In most of your Bibles, that's on the same page that you have. You may have to turn back a page. But after Jesus cast out a demon of a man who was uh, mute because of the demon possession, he, the Pharisees interpreted this uh, and rejected it as a sign of his messiahship. And in verse 34, the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. So all that they are saying at that point, all that Matthew's reporting, is that they're identifying his source of power as coming from the one who is the ruler of the demons. In Matthew chapter 12, as we move through, as, as Matthew's increasing uh, the, the, his telling of the opposition, he will culminate in this opposition in Matthew chapter 12, and there he re- reports that the Pharisees, said that this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So in Matthew 9.34, Jesus says, I'm going to be, uh, or Matthew says that Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the ruler of the demons. In um, Matthew 10.25, uh, Jesus says that this identifies this ruler of the demons as Beelzebub, and then in Matthew 12:24 the whole phrase is put together and we learn that Beelzebub is a title for the ruler of the demons. Now this term Beelzebub is kind of an interesting uh interesting kind of a term. It's uh found in the actually in the Greek text of this passage it's written as Beelzebul and there's a bit of a little textual problem that we run into but uh, as we look at this particular uh, situation, what we have to do is under, uh, understand what is being said, first of all. He's using what is called, or Jesus is using is what is called an a fortiori argument. That's a Latin phrase. Fortiori, you can always just think of that as the word fort, something that's strong, a strong defensive position. The a is the preposition for from, so it literally means from the stronger. And it's the type of logical argument where you state something that is a much stronger reality, and then you infer that if this is true for the greater reality, it would also be true for the lesser reality. In Hebrew, this is called a kal v'komer argument, which literally means light and heavy. And it's basically saying that if something greater is true, for example, Jesus is greater than his disciples, and if it's true that he's going to be accused of performing miracles by uh, the ruler of the demons, then it would uh, you can infer that those who were associated with him would also be accused of performing their signs and wonders in the power of Beelzebul. Now this phrase, Beelze, it's literally Beelzebul in the Greek of this passage, although 
several translations translate it, and probably correctly, as Beelzebub. This is a name that was given to one of the manifestations of the Canaanite god Baal back in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 1-2, we're told of uh, Ahaziah, one of the kings of, uh, of, Judah, uh, of Israel, who fell through the uh, lattice of his upper room, and he said, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. So this was the particular title of the idol in Ekron, one of the cities of the Philistines, and he's seeking guidance as to whether or not he's going to survive. Now, the, the, the title for this particular deity, for this manifestation of Baal, meant Lord of the Flies. But later, much later in the transition period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, his name was changed to Baal Zabul, which is a play on words. It's a pun. And the word Zabul changes the meaning from Lord of the Flies to Lord of the Dung. So it became a, an insult, a way of, and this is what typically would happen in the ancient world, is that they would take the gods of the enemy nations and they would apply some sort of, uh, of negative a title to that god in order to elevate their own deity and to put down the other person's god. So this was applied by this title for Beelzebub was applied then uh, to the devil or to Satan. So it's basically a play on words calling Satan the Lord of the Dumb. So this is the background here. And it relates to Satan. It's just another title for Satan. In Matthew 12, 24, Jesus will be accused by the Pharisees in public of performing his miracles by the power of Satan. And there they say that he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And then Jesus responds, in his response, he, he affirms that and connects that to Satan. He says, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself in verse 26. And then he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub. So the parallelism shows us that Beelzebub is just another title, uh, another title for Satan. So what Jesus says in the second half of verse 25 is to his disciples, if they're going to accuse me of having power from Satan, they're certainly going to accuse you of having your power from Satan. So this is the kind of hostility and opposition you can expect. It doesn't have anything to do with logic. It doesn't have anything to do with your personality or how nice you are or how much scripture you know. It's because you are identified with Jesus and they are rejecting Jesus that you will experience this kind of rejection. And by application, we are all potentially uh, victims of this kind of opposition and persecution. And let me tell you, it has nothing to do with who you are. They're not rejecting you. They are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have to keep that in mind so that you don't respond personally. It's so hard for many of us that when we are talking to someone about what we believe so dearly, and we're talking to them about Scripture, we're talking to them about the Lord, and then they react in some extremely negative way, we want to take that personally, and then we react. And rather than staying calm and relaxed, 
then we get involved in more of an of an argument, and we've all experienced that when we're trying to witness to somebody and explain the gospel to them, that is, they become a little more hostile, then we feed off of their hostility, we react to their hostility, and the next thing you know, we get get involved in more of a debate and an argument than just a calm conversation trying to uh, help someone understand the gospel. Now, the response here that Jesus says, and three times he mentions it, is the way that we're to handle this kind of opposition is to not be afraid, to not give in to fear. And see, that's what happens when we often face some hostility as we witness to somebody is the anger or the hostility that we may uh, be tempted to fall into is a result of fear, fear of rejection, fear of someone uh, re- uh, becoming hostile to us and treating us in a disrespectful manner of some sort or insulting us, and we're not to be afraid. Now, it's very interesting when we get into this particular passage that there are these, these, this emphasis on fear. In verse uh, 26, Jesus says, do not fear them. And then again, when we get into verse 28, he says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And then he says, in conclusion, in verse 31, do not fear, therefore. And even though the vocabulary is the same in each one of these uh, exhortations, he expresses it differently in the grammar. And so uh, whenever you're reading this, you sort of have to take some time to see if that really makes much of a difference or not, and I'll bring that, those points out as we look at this. So the basic command here that run, that's repeated three times is that we're not to respond in fear. And so he begins by saying, don't fear them, and he uses a interesting con- a construction here. He uses an aorist passive subjunctive. Now, I know this drives some people nuts because we get into technical grammar, but there's a difference between putting a command in an aorist tense and putting a command in a present tense. And in an aorist tense with the negative, it indicates that you need to stop doing something that you've you've already started to do. You've already begun the process of being afraid. So the idea there is stop being afraid. You've already started. Uh, quit doing it. And so there, that, that emphasis is there. Now, there are some times when uh, this word or this grant, grammatical construction is used, and it still primarily has the force of just a general prohibition. But as grammarians point out, it still seems to have that sense that you can't get away from it, uh, that you've already started doing it, so stop stop doing it. So at this point, that's what he's saying. Now, later, he's going to shift to a present uh, passive imperative, which has a little different sense to it. So because he uses all of these, he's, it's like he's covering all the bases. You started, quit doing it. And if you haven't started, don't start. So he's making, he's covering all the bases to make sure we understand how important it is not to give in to fear. And that's the idea in the passive voice. It's interesting that this isn't an active voice verb because fear, we would think, is something that we choose to do. But by emphasizing it as passive, it emphasizes that this is like an automatic reflex. 
an automatic response to a set of circumstances. The, in a passive voice mood, if you understand grammar, the subject, the grammatical subject, which is each one of us, is, uh, is acted upon by, by the verb or receives the action of the verb. So what I think is going on here, as I'll develop in a few minutes, is that fear is the basic orientation of everyone's sin, sin nature. When Adam and Eve sinned, and they're now in a fallen condition, and God came to them in the garden, God says, well, well, where are you, and, and why are you hiding from me? And Adam said in Genesis 3, verse 10, that we heard the sound of you in the garden, and we were afraid. See, the basic orientation of the sin nature is on arrogance. We are totally focused on self. We are self-absorbed, and we are totally focused on surviving as self. In the instant that Adam sinned, he separated from the God, the creator God of the universe, who alone is in control of everything in the universe. And because he's in right relationship to God, there's nothing for Adam to be concerned with. There's nothing for him to worry about. There's nothing to be fearful of because he is totally relaxed because of his relationship with the creator who controls everything. But as soon as Adam sinned, the entire universe is plunged into chaos. Everything is now out of control. It's not out of God's control, but from the creature's viewpoint, he's been separated from God now by sin, and everything is out of control. The the environment has changed, so it is chaotic. Even though it's chaotic, God still controls it, as as we will see as we develop this. But the creature is now aware that everything is out of control. And his immediate response to everything being out of control is now he's afraid because he can't control it. Security is gone. Uh, Stability is gone. He has no idea how to deal with this hostile environment now that he is a sinner. And we're all born in that situation. In fact, some philosophers and psychologists have stumbled upon this truth, and they use the uh, German word, which I think is a good word for it. They, They use the German word angst in order to communicate this, that people are just born with this soul condition of angst. We're angry, we're worried, we're upset, we come into this world with this state of agitation. And that reflects a biblical truth that they've stumbled on. We're all born and we come out of the womb and that sin nature is activated and immediately we are in a state of high stress and high anxiety, and we seek to start controlling our environment. And how do we start when we start doing that? We start crying. We want everybody's attention to take care of us immediately and to start solving whatever problems we think that exist. And so this is what Jesus is dealing with here, and this is why the verb in the Greek New Testament never occurs in an active voice. It always occurs in this passive voice. It is a state that is natural to our sin nature, and apart from making a decision to trust in God and rely upon him, we're constantly going to be in this state of high anxiety. So Jesus says, don't fear them. The first thing we need to recognize when we're going to face any hostility or rejection is don't be afraid, don't worry, don't be concerned about it, don't, don't give in to fear, worry, anxiety, the whole complex of the, of, uh, of, of the sins of, of fear and worry. 
he says why. First of all, he states, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And he sets this up using a certain parallelism. And what he's pointing out is eventually there will be a judgment in which everything is exposed. For believers, that judgment takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. For unbelievers, it takes place at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. But Jesus is just stating a general principle here for them. Remember, even though this is done, it may be done in secret or it may be hidden now, it's not going to remain that way. Eventually, there is accountability and God will bring about righteous judgment. There's nothing covered that will not be revealed. Even if people are betraying you in secret, eventually that will be exposed. There's nothing that's hidden that will not be known. And then he goes on to say, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Now, this is a positive command. Jesus is saying, basically using these these two uh, uh, idioms, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Whatever I tell you in your ear, that would be in a situation of privacy, preach or proclaim on the housetops. Proclaim it publicly. A housetop in a lot of activity took place in the houses in the ancient Middle East. They had flat roofs, and especially during the warm weather, people would often sleep on the roof or they would conduct a lot of their life up on the roof. And so this was something, an area where everything was done in the open and out in public. So what Jesus says is, whatever I communicate to you in privacy, as I'm instructing you as disciples, you were to go out and proclaim this publicly and expose this information to everyone. So he said, remember, everything eventually will be made right at the in God's judgment. In verse 28, he repeats this command, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Now, in this verse, two things we need to address is that his the commands are contrasts. On the one hand, don't fear people who can simply kill your physical body. Don't kill those who can just harm you and hurt you physically, but they can't destroy your soul. They can't destroy your spiritual life. All they can do is create trauma for you. All they can do is create physical pain for you, but instead fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnom that is located just to the south of Jerusalem. And it was the place that was the mark, uh, the location of the uh, uh, human sacrifice in the Old Testament period. This was where one of the greatest degrees of, uh, of Israel's sin in the Old Testament was when they succumbed to the worship of Moloch and the uh, immolation, the sacrifice of their infants uh, in the arms of Moloch where there would be a huge fire stoked in the furnace of these idols and then they would put their child in the arms of Moloch and he would be incinerated on that idol. And so this then became a depiction of judgment of the reason for God's judgment on Israel was what took place in the valley of Hinnom. And so this became an image of judgment. So what uh, Jesus is saying here, to put it and translate it more idiomatically, he says, rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in judgment. 
It's not talking about the kind of judgment. It's not talking about eternal judgment. It is just making this contrast that that don't be afraid of the person, who, the human, who can just harm you physically, but rather be in fear of the ultimate judge of the universe who is in control of all things. And so it is this God who is the God, the ultimate judge before whom we will stand, that is also the omniscient, loving God who takes care of us. And he uses uh, two illustrations here. In verse 29, he, he uses the illustration of two sparrows. A sparrow is almost a, a worthless uh, uh, a bird. It's what we used to call when we'd go hunting when I was young, a trash bird. There are many sparrows. They have no value for meat. They have no value for, for survival. And so they're, they're not worth very much. And he says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? They're, they're just worth a penny. They're not worth anything. And yet, then he says, and in contrast, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. As insignificant as a sparrow might be, the death of any sparrow is not unknown, unobserved by the God who oversees all of creation. If God is focused on the most insignificant aspects of his creation, what Jesus is saying is how much more God is paying attention to what goes on in your life as one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ, one who is seeking to grow to spiritual maturity. And then he uses another example uh, related to the idiom for hairs of your head. This was a uh, idiom that's found many times in the Old Testament related to uh, someone's death, that not, uh, not one hair of someone's head would fall to the ground was sort of an idiom for death. And so in Matthew 10.30, he says, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. God is aware of the most significant details in your life. I just thought I'd see who's paying attention this morning and not falling asleep. What that says, in case you can't read it, is two angels hovering over this rather uh, <clears throat> hirsute individual with hair all over his back, and so they say, we only have to number the head hairs, right? So the point that Jesus is making is that the very hairs of our head are numbered. The most minute, apparently insignificant details in our lives are the focus of God's attention. And so in verse 31, he then concludes again with this statement, Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And the conclusion is that God is not unaware of what circumstances surround us. We may be faced with opposition, we may be faced with persecution, we may be faced with martyrdom, but God is fully aware and he provides for us the grace that we need to handle any circumstance in any situation. Just like the disciples were given a mission to take the gospel of the kingdom to the house of Israel, then we as church-age believers are given the mission, whether you're man or woman, whether you're... Uh, uh, American, whether you're African, whether you're Asian, whatever you are, man, woman, child, we have the mission to make disciples, to communicate the gospel, to witness to others, to encourage them with the word. Now, different people have different gifts, but we're all given this basic mission, and we're going to face hostility, and yet too often 
what causes us to, to draw back, to not say something, to avoid that opportunity to witness to somebody is because there's this level of anxiety, this level of fear. And so three times Jesus says, don't worry about the response. Let him worry about it. Our responsibility is to communicate the truth of the gospel, and we are not to be afraid, but to trust in the God who controls all the circumstances to watch over us and provide for us no matter what happens. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to focus on these things, to be reminded of your care and concern for us, that the most minute aspects of our lives are always uh, known by you, you are very much aware of every circumstance, positive and negative, and that we need to have a relaxed mental attitude. We need to rest and trust in you and recognize that, that by worry, by anxiety, by fear, we cannot solve any problem. It doesn't help us. It doesn't strengthen us. It doesn't give us an edge. It is simply a way in which we, in our arrogance, are seeking to control that which we can no, cannot control at all. Father, we pray, too, for anyone here this morning who's not sure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would make these principles of your grace and your plan of salvation very clear to them. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that everyone is under condemnation, and that there's no solution other than your solution, that we can't make ourselves savable, we can't save ourselves, We must have someone who is perfectly righteous die in our place. This was the emphasis on all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, that the way to be cleansed, the way to have sin dealt with, was through the death of uh, of a sacrifice. And all of those sacrifices were the picture of that ultimate sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because he was called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the issue is simply trusting in him, relying upon his work and not our work. And so Scripture says the only thing that is required is for us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. Father, we pray that you would make that very clear to whoever needs to understand that. Father, we pray that each of us would be challenged not to trust in our own devices, but to not be afraid because we're relaxed and we're focused upon you and we understand that you are the one who is working to sustain us and to strengthen us in each and every situation, especially those where we are under rejection, hostility, and opposition for our stand for Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.